Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are starting a new sermon series that will be in uh, throughout Advent uh, that we're calling God Came Down. Really, Advent is the story, uh, the long story of the Bible uh, that's told from Genesis to Revelation of God moving towards his people in order to live with them. Einstein, uh, Albert Einstein once said, uh, he said this, he said, the most important question facing humanity is this. Is the universe a friendly place, or is it not? A lot of people assume, especially around Christmas time, that the Christian answer is a naive yes, right? That God is good, and the world is basically good, and people are basically good. Uh, it can be wrapped in a kind of religious sentimentality. But Advent uh, is an honest admission that if we take the Bible seriously, and if we take our own lives seriously then we have to admit that, that this world does not seem to be a friendly place. Uh, that we, uh, in, our, in and of our own selves, sin. We sin against God. We sin against others. Other people sin against us. A quick tour through the news will show that uh, people largely, uh, though we are capable at times of kindness and tenderness towards one another, uh, that we're also marked by violence and greed and bickering and prejudice. And so the story of Advent the story that leads us to Christmas, is not be happy the world is a friendly place. Uh, it's that this world is often very unfriendly and that God has come into the midst of a broken world, an unfriendly world. In fact, in the passage uh, that we're going to look at this morning in Genesis chapter 3, at the very moment of the world's breaking, the very moment that sin enters into the world, God comes down. He comes into this world showing that he is not going to abandon it, he's not going to abandon us, that God continues to come down into this world to dwell with his people. It's a story uh, that ultimately culminates in Jesus, God in the flesh coming into an unfriendly world, taking the hostility of the world onto himself on the cross and triumphing over it in his resurrection. The Bible story is a story of God coming down to be with us. And so this morning, we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is Genesis 3, 6 through 15. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat for the rest of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and is given to us in love. You can be seated. I remember as a kid uh, playing the game hide and seek. You, uh, if you were ever a child, you probably played this game, uh, terrifying in its way, that you go uh, maybe with some friends and you hide. Go to a place where you're certain that no one will find you, no one will see you. At some moment after counting to a pre-designated number, someone says, ready or not, here I come, and they go looking for you. And of course, the goal is to hide well enough not to be found, but I remember a peculiar sense of anxiety as a kid that happened as moments went by and seconds became minutes, and you weren't found. This anxiety uh, that was, have I hidden myself too well? Have I hidden myself so well that nobody's going to find me, and eventually they're just going to go on with their day, they're going to go on with their life, and they may forget that they were supposed to be looking for me at all. Now, I think even then I had the idea that my parents probably at some point would say, hey, you guys remember Dave? What happened? Where's he? But the fear was that my friends would go on to do something else. They'd move on to another game, ride their bikes to another house, and I'd be left under a bed or behind a curtain, unfound. I found some relief as a father when I began playing hide-and-seek with my children when they were young, and I realized how uh, foolish my fears were because, by and large, children are terrible at hiding. Uh, I remember sending my children out to hide, and they had this childhood idea that if they couldn't see me, that I couldn't see them. So you'd come into a room with a child hiding behind a table thinking you can't see them, or maybe with the blinds pulled over their face. And you realize, oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, I was never really going to be lost. Uh, Kids aren't that effective at hiding. Adam and Eve, uh, when we meet them in our story, are playing uh, a rather foolish game of hide and seek. If it's foolish to believe that if you can't see your dad, he can't see you, how much more foolish is it to believe that you can hide from an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God? by throwing on some fig leaves and ducking behind a tree. And yet, uh, there Adam and Eve are. Uh, We're told that when they sinned, when they ate of the fruit, their eyes were open, they realized their own nakedness, and so they hid from one another. Previously to this, their presence in each other's life had been only benign, it had been purely loving, no room for shame or judgment. And yet now, all of a sudden, they feel the need to hide from one another, and when they Hear God approaching, they attempt to hide from God. Adam and Eve are terrified of being found in the light of what they've now done, what they know now about their sin, their guilt, their sudden awareness of their own vulnerability before him and others. They can't bear the thought of being found by God. 
I wonder, too, if there was a fear not only of being found, but of being lost forever, of hiding from him so well that the presence that they were made for, the presence that they knew prior to the fall was lost to them. And so hiding there behind their fig leaves and among the trees, they likely felt about God a certain mix of desire and terror. Desire for God, the belief that it could ever be with him like it was before, like they could ever live with him in communion and friendship. And terror that they'll be found and seen for who they really are. And I think that most of us relate to God out of some mix like this of desire and terror. Now, I think in our late modern world, we like to convince ourselves that we relate to God primarily out of our reason, right? That we have heard the arguments, we've weighed the evidence, we've heard the talks, read the books, and we come to an enlightened decision about who God is, whether he exists or doesn't exist whether the claims of Christianity are true or false. I remember as a kid receiving the book, which actually was uh, super helpful at the time, uh, by an apologist named Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. The idea being that we are a judge, that Jesus is on trial before us, and we're left to decide whether or not he is who he says he is. And yet I think that we really relate to God out of something far more visceral than that far more in our gut than in our mind. We find ourselves like Adam and Eve, mixed with desire for God, some nagging sense that we were made for him, that we were made for a life beyond this world and what we can taste and touch and experience, some transcendent relationship. And yet the fear that if God were to really know us as we really are, if he were to see us as we truly are, that we would meet only his judgment. So I think we have mixed feelings about God, desire and fear. And we're going to look uh, in this story at the way that God moves towards Adam and Eve in their hiding, that he seeks them out uh, in the midst of their foolish hiding in order to give them what they desire and to calm that which they fear. First, their desire. I love verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There in the wake of their sin, in the midst of their shame and hiding, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the coolest part of the day. This uh, infers or this, this uh, suggests that they knew what God's walking sounded like, right? That they heard a noise and they knew that it wasn't the wind. They knew that it wasn't an elephant. They knew that it wasn't a tiger. They knew that it wasn't some other creature. They heard the sound in the grass. They heard the sound through the trees and they said, that's the sound of God walking in this garden. You see, this is what they were made for. This is what we are made for. They were made, and the only thing they had ever known was life in the garden, was made to be a place where they could meet with God, where they could know God, where they could walk with God. The word here uh, for walking, they heard him walking in the garden. Now, it does mean walking, but in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a metaphor for something much bigger. 
Uh, in the Old Testament, to say that someone is walking with someone is more than just to say that they were literally physically walking. It was a metaphor for friendship. So that we learn things like Abraham walked with Lot and David walked with Jonathan. To walk with someone was to live in a friendship with them. It was to live in a kind of intimacy with them, to share your life and your journey with them. We'll still say things like that, right? We'll sometimes ask one another, How, how's your spiritual walk going? How's your walk with God? We'll uh, suggest to someone who's hurting, someone in pain, that we'd like to walk with them through this season of hardship. So to walk with someone is to live your life with them. It's to live your life in a kind of a friendship. And so when God comes walking in the garden, this is what Adam and Eve were made to do. This is what Adam and Eve had spent their days doing, was walking with God in friendship, in intimacy, in communion, in the garden. The garden was meant to be the place in the midst of this world, right? We're told that sometimes I think we think that before the fall, that the whole earth was like the Garden of Eden, right? That everything was just perfect. But we know that outside the garden, there's wilderness, right? Adam and Eve are going to end up there. But the garden was made to be a kind of a temple, a kind of a place where heaven and earth could meet, where God and man and woman could live their life together. The early Celtic Christians had a wonderful phrase for this. They describe this kind of place as a thin place, a place where the barrier between heaven and earth was, was not thick but thin, a place where God and men could meet and could know one another. Most of us uh, tend to believe that such a thing isn't possible, right? We tend to live most of our lives, I think most of us uh, in Western culture tend to live our lives as deists. Practically, we live our lives as deists. What is a deist? A deist is the religion of, of most of our founding fathers. There was the belief that, yes, there was a creator. Yes, God made the world. But the gap between heaven and earth is not thin, but huge. Right? That God made things, and then he went on his way and left us basically to figure things out on our own. And so we live most of our days without reference to a God who can intervene in our lives, who can interact in our lives, who wants to know us and to be known by us. We live practically a kind of deism. Surveys show that most uh, Western uh, people, both Americans and Europeans, do still functionally do still believe in the existence of a God. Right, even though uh, religious commitments are down across the board, that there is still this idea that that most people believe there is a God somewhere. But where doubt creeps in is about whether or not he wants anything to do with us, whether we can know at all what he's like, whether his ideas and his will has any claim on our lives, whether or not essentially the gap between us is thin and permeable where he can come into our lives, or if it's thick and insurmountable. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, most people uh, don't want really a heavenly father. Uh, we'd prefer a heavenly grandfather. Right, A grandfather who stays off to himself and basically just wants to know that the young people are having a good time. Right, Wants to know that everybody's happy, everybody's doing okay. Um, and that at the end of the day, at the end of the universe, can say a good time was had by all. Everybody enjoyed themselves. But what we don't want is a holy God. 
a God whose uh, will makes demands on us. We don't want a God of holy love who refuses to leave us in hiding, refuses to leave us on our own apart from him, but a God who's pursuing us, a God who's seeking us, a God who's moving after us. And the story of the Bible will never make sense to you if you think of God primarily as a distant father in the sky. Right? The Bible from this first page of Genesis all the way through Revelation is a God who's constantly moving into this world. He's the kind of God who can appear, who can move towards Adam and Eve. He's the kind of God who uh, appears to Abraham in a burning bush, a kind of God who makes his glory to pass before Moses, the kind of God who brings Isaiah up into heaven to give him a vision. He's ultimately the kind of God who could be born in a virgin's womb, becoming so uh, vulnerable and small that he could even die for the sake of his world. The God of the Bible is not a God who keeps his distance. He's a God who comes for us. And so when you desire God, if there's a part of you that recognizes that you do long for some kind of reality on the other side, the great promise of the Bible is that your desire isn't doomed to be frustrated forever. Right? That you don't have to live with this kind of vague hope that there might be something out there. But that he's a God who relentlessly comes near to you. And that ultimately, as Adam and Eve learn, is that he is the God who seeks you. The God that you seek ultimately seeks after you. The gardener will not abandon his garden. He comes into Eden right in the moment that it's spoiled by sin. He won't abandon us. Adam and Eve know that, and, uh, and that is precisely their problem. They know it, and so they go and they hide. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The word here for presence, they hid themselves from the, pres- from their, from the presence of the Lord, is literally they hid themselves from the Lord's face. Right? They heard him coming, and that they hid from his face. They had already hidden from one another's face. When they realized they were naked, they made clothes for themselves, and they hid. Now convinced because of sin and its partner shame, that they shouldn't be seen, that they shouldn't be beheld by anyone, they go into hiding. And now here they hide from God's face. It's the same word that's used uh, in the benediction in Numbers chapter 6, the priestly benediction that we read very often at the end of, of our services, right? May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the shining of the Lord's face is essentially his smile. It was a, the Hebrew idiom for describing a, a shining face was the way that a face lights up when it smiles. And so the promise of God's face shining is essentially may God smile over you. May God look at you and see you, and then when he sees you, may, his, may he grin from ear to ear, the shining of his face. And so sin uh, leads to a kind of us pronouncing a reverse benediction on ourselves, a perversion of the benediction. No longer convinced, convinced now that God's face won't shine on us because of our breaking of his will, because of our sin, because of our shame. We hide from his face. We run from it. 
We run from God. And here uh, is the birth in the world of shame. Right? Sin is Adam and Eve eating the fruit. Right? Choosing in that moment of temptation uh, that they knew better than God. That their way was best, not God's way. Shame is what always goes with sin. And shame, uh, one, one commentator describes uh, shame as a deep unease with ourselves. Right? It's a sense that there's something fundamentally about us that's broken beyond restoration. Something that if the face of God or the face of another were simply to look at us, were to see us as we really are, they would see everything that's wrong with us. Every dark corner of our souls, every flaw in our bodies, every flaw in our personality. And so shame always leads to hiding. Kurt Thompson, in his wonderful book, The Soul of Shame, says this. He says, shame taints absolutely everything. If shame were a physical element, it would be carbon, the element that is in every living thing. Right? Shame is a part of what sin, maybe the main part of what sin does to each of our hearts. That it convinces us that there is something in us that is not worthy of the love of God or of others. It's shame at our work that keeps us constantly saying in the back of our mind, I'm not really good enough. Right? I don't really belong in this job and one day I'm going to blow it so bad that my boss is going to see it and I'm going to get fired. It's shame at school that says, I'm not really smart enough, right? Eventually, everybody else is going to surpass me, and I'm not going to be able to keep up. It's shame in our marriages that says, I'm not really beautiful. I'm not really attractive, and my spouse, when they see me as I am, won't really be attracted to me. Or I have no no idea what I'm doing in this marriage, and sometime, someday, my spouse is going to figure that out, that I'm utterly overwhelmed by them, and they're going to leave. It's shame that when we look out at our peers in search of friendship, say, I'm not cool enough. I'm not likable enough. I don't belong enough. And it's shame before God that tells us I'm not good enough. That I'm not righteous enough. Everybody else has it together. Everybody else looks so good at church. Everybody else is so righteous and prayerful and holy. But I don't belong. I'm not good enough to belong with God. And so our fear comes in and tells us that if God really knows us, he'll only judge us and reject us. And so we keep our distance, knowing our sin, knowing our right guilt before God, distrusting that our desire for him will ever be satisfied. We hide. We hide behind trees and fig leaves. We hide behind our our excuses and our blame. I love this interaction that Adam and Eve have with God here. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Right? Adam, listen, I know you don't hang out with anybody but me and Eve. Right? You don't know anything but what I told you. So who, who came around and told you that you had something to be ashamed of? Who told you you were naked? Who told you you were vulnerable? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me 
the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So the Lord turns to, the, to Eve, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. We have here our first recorded case of artful dodging of the question, right? Of, of, of trying to blame others for what we've done, shifting the blame, making excuses. There's a, uh, a book that was written a couple of years ago by Carol Tarvis, a social scientist. I love the title. The title is Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Uh, and it's a book essentially about the way that public apologies work in our culture. Right, Adam and Eve, so the phrase there, mistakes were made, uh, in Tarvis's estimation, is the, is the absolute least responsibility one can claim for sin. <laughs> right, whether or not you're a politician in front of a press conference, a celebrity making a, a press statement after being caught in some notorious sin. Now, yes, mistakes were made, right? Very passive, nobody's saying who did it, but look, we can all agree, mistakes were made here, and now what we want to do is move on. This is Adam and Eve could be any of us, caught red-handed in sin, caught red-handed with our worst side exposed, saying, no, no, well, yes, I had some blame, but Eve was the one who gave it to me. And Eve goes, well, what did you do placing, did you know the snake talks? What did you do putting us in a garden <laughs> where snakes are tempting me to eat? The serpent was the one who led me to do this. And so whether we're about hiding in the bushes or hiding behind our excuses, we are committed uh, to our plan of hiding. And yet the God that we meet uh, in this chapter is a God who moves relentlessly towards sinners, right? He moves towards us, not to destroy us, not to crush us, but he's always, even here right in the very next verses after the sin, God is moving towards sinners to crush sin and to cover shame. He's moving towards us, not to crush us, but to crush our sin and to cover our shame. He's moving towards us. He asks Adam, where are you? In verse 9. Now, when God asks a question like this, he's not asking because he doesn't know. Right? He's not asking because Adam fooled him with his hiding. He's giving Adam an invitation to begin to come out of hiding. He's giving Adam an invitation to begin to offer a confession. Yeah, God, I'm here. I'm here behind this tree. I'm here behind these fig leaves. I'm here covered in the guilt of my sin, hiding in my shame. I'm right over here. And this is the first step that God asks of us when he moves towards us. When he moves towards us in his mercy, when he moves towards us in grace, what he asks of us is to admit where we are, to, uh, to tell the truth about ourselves, to admit that we never really were all that good at pretending, we were never really all that good at hiding from him, and to say, God, I'm here. I'm here in my sin, I did it. I'm here in my shame, I'm hiding, and I don't I can't bear to come near you, but I'm here to admit the truth about yourself and your situation is what the scriptures call repentance. It's to say, I'm here and I have need. 
I'm here and I'm a sinner. I'm here and I'm in need of your grace. Derek Kidner, a great Old Testament scholar, says that what Adam and Eve reveal here uh, is the beginning of humanity's uh, attempts to hide from God's mercy. We think we're hiding from his judgment, but what we're doing is hiding from his mercy, hiding from the possibility of his forgiveness. We do this, I talk to people all the time who this is at the core of their reason why they don't go to church anymore. Right, is well, no, I know that I've blown it too bad. I know that I've done things that cannot be forgiven. I know that, that I don't belong with those people. I know what church people are like. And I know that I don't fit there. But friends, that's like hiding from God in the trees. It's hiding from somebody that you have no prayer of hiding from. It's hiding from someone who's only waiting for you to raise your hand and to say, yeah, it's me. I'm the sinner in need of your mercy. So he moves towards sinners. He moves against sin. Look at what he says in verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Right Already right here, Genesis 3.15, we have what, what most believe is the first promise of the coming of Christ uh, in, the, in the Bible. That right in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin, God promises them that there will be enmity between sin, between evil, Satan, and humanity. But in the end, though uh, evil may nip at the heels of humanity, ultimately the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That the serpent will strike uh, at the heel of the, of the woman's offspring, will cause pain and suffering, but ultimately he's the one who's defeated. That the story of sin that begins in the Garden of Eden ultimately ends at the garden tomb of Jesus, where at his resurrection he comes out triumphing over sin and death and Satan. The triumph of the seed of the woman, the descendant of Eve, is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? That Jesus had to be born of a woman, born in the life, a son of Eve, coming to fulfill the promise that in the end, Satan doesn't get to totally mar God's image and destroy humanity but that the seed of the, of the woman will overcome uh, sin, temptation, sickness, death, Satan himself. God moves towards sinners, but even here with Adam and Eve, he doesn't move towards them to crush them, but to crush their enemy, to crush your enemy and my enemy. And then he covers their shame. We didn't read this, but look, uh, if you would, at verse 20 and 21. Verse 21. And the Lord made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Walter Brueggemann says, God does for the early couple what they cannot do for themselves. They cannot deal with their shame, but God can, will, and does. 
these two people who are so committed to hiding from God and from one another, God covers them. He covers them, it says, not with more fig leaves, uh, but with skins. Right? This is the first uh, sacrifice in the Bible. Is God takes an animal, this is all inferred here, but takes an animal, sacrifices it, in order to provide the skins to cover the shame and nakedness of Adam and Eve. I love this because, you know, shame is not of God's design. It's something that came into the world, that came into our own lives because of our own sin, because of our own brokenness and our own rebellion. And yet God meets us in it to cover over our shame in a way that only he can. So that we no longer, now covered by his sacrifice, clothed in his righteousness, have no reason to hide anymore. So friends, how do we relate to God? In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our shame, we can know with confidence that God in our sin is always moving towards us, always coming down towards us in grace, in mercy. And we can know that he offers forgiveness for our sin. He offers covering for our shame. That means we don't have to hide. We don't have to keep our distance from God when we feel the weight of our flaws and our sin. When we feel like we've blown it beyond restoration, we don't have to run. We don't have to hide. We can go near to the God who comes near to us. It also means that we live as a people of a God who's shown himself to be simultaneously for sinners and against sin and shame. In a world where everyone is always judging one another about everything, about our political party and affiliations, about the way that we live our lives, about the way that we treat ourselves and one another, Christians should be the people who are unreservedly for our neighbors, that your neighbor cannot sin enough to make you their enemy. Now, you can be against sin, right? That We also, we also have God's word and we know what he, what he says is best for us and that God is absolutely against everything that mars his creation, everything that diminishes human life. So you, God is for you and against everything that robs you of life. So you can be for your neighbors, for your friends, for your fellow church group members, for your family, in a way that is so unabashedly and unreservedly and sacrificially for them that you oppose and work towards the redemption of everything that diminishes them. That you're there for them to pick them up. You're there for them to point them to grace. You're there for them to extend mercy and to cover shame because we are the people of a seeking and covering God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess uh, that we so often do uh, prefer to keep our distance from you. We prefer uh, to hide left to our own devices than to live in the light of your presence, to be revealed for who we really are before you. Father, you've shown us, demonstrating for us in the cross and resurrection, Lord, that you are for us, even in the midst of our sin and foolishness and guilt and shame, that you are for us and you're moving towards us. And so, Lord, give us the faith uh, to admit where we are, to come out of hiding, 
not so that we'd be exposed to your judgment, but so that we would be exposed to your mercy, that our shame might be covered, our guilt forgiven, and our souls restored. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the seeking and covering God. Come near for us. Lord, we pray that we would find our life in you and with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org. 